I'm Sandra Hayes Buckley and you are listening to the Mind Your Mind podcast, a podcast that delves into what minding your mind means to different people, what self-care looks like in their lives and why minding their minds is so important to them. I hope you enjoy. Today's bonus and extended episode of the Mind Your Mind podcast was recorded in front of a live audience in Middleton in East Cork last week. I was joined on the evening by three very special guests to talk all about mental health and well-being for World Mental Health Day 2023, which is today. My guests on the evening were teacher, author, cancer survivor and founder of the Hope to Cope charity, Catherine Dolphin Griffin, health psychologist, Aideen Stack and registered disability nurse and CBT psychotherapist, Emily Murphy. I'd like to once again thank these ladies for sharing their own stories so openly and for conversation that was uplifting, inspiring, thought provoking and at times vulnerable and raw with emotion. There were laughs, tears and a lot of takeaways and food for thought during this very special conversation and I hope you enjoy. I am joined by three very special guests tonight. I'm not going to do the introductions because I think there is no one more qualified to introduce um, someone than themselves. So um, we're going to start with Catherine and work our way down here and then we'll get stuck into the conversation. So ladies, um, could you introduce yourselves, give us an insight into who you are and what you're all about. Hi, um, my name is Catherine. Um, I'm a primary school teacher. I'm married to Morris for 22 years. I have two children, two teenagers. Um, in 2009, I call it my little menopause, I decided to leave my corporate world behind to have a better work-life balance and retrain as a teacher. Um, so that involved the Leavenstock Irish, Hibernia Online, two small children at home, um, and the Gwail Tucked. The Gwail Tucked has to be mentioned because that nearly led to divorce. Um, so at the end of that, two months after qualifying as a teacher, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. So I'd had my permanent job, I had everything done, the course done, and two months in, I was like, so I lost my voice in class one day. And um, yeah, so I got diagnosed, and the next 10 years, led me on a path of I suppose, survival mode because I had 10 surgeries over 10 years. Um, I lost my hearing, I'm partially deaf. My dad was diagnosed five times and my dad is my world, my best friend. And I, I say that blatantly everywhere with no disrespect to my own friends and my own husband and my own children. My dad and myself were like two peas in a pod. Um, so I became his carer um, and he lost his battle, his fifth battle on World Cancer Day 2017. So I suppose at that point, that was the first time in my life that I felt that I had no hope. You know, I know that sounds really bleak because I'm the most hopeful Disney princess you'll ever lay your eyes upon. But that was the first time that I really found it difficult to understand the feeling I was feeling, the loss I was feeling, the deep sadness, even though I had such love in my life and um, such joy in my life. Um, I just couldn't understand and I suppose when I started to kind of separate it out and think about all the elements of it, um, you know, I had cancer, my brothers didn't, um, or my children thinking that I'm going to be like dad and granddad and it's going to keep coming back for me and all these emotions were flooding through my system and I woke up one day and I thought, do you know what, I have unfinished business with cancer that needs to be tended to um, and that was... I do have a fighting spirit in me and when I go down, I say I go down, I go down for about an hour and then I go, right, there has to be another way, there has to be. Um, but when dad died, I went down for nearly two years. So I literally went to work, home, super value, home. Um, and that was it. And when, and I, I thought, we talk about this later, but it was literally checking out myself and knowing, I know this is all I can do. That's okay. 
And that's what I did do. Even though people were advising me, you know, we should go out more, you should go to the staff room. I knew I couldn't do that because they were triggers for me. So I just stayed on my little path of survival because that's what it was. And I kept saying to everyone, you know, my dad has died. I am brokenhearted. My life is not the same. You know, this is the price I pay for love. And I'm just going to navigate it my way. And you're going to have to wait for me or go on without me. That's just the rule I had and the rule I stuck to. Um, but then when the kind of two years had passed, I kind of felt this is the new self now. You know, I can't change that time. I can't change my side effects. But I can change a lot about how I view them, how my children view me, how they now see me again as a strong person because they hadn't seen me as a strong person. They saw me as mommy crying in the corner, mommy running around, you know, mommy won't worrying, mom going to the hospital, mom going to the doctors, you know. Um, so I knew I had to do something. I didn't know what to do. Um, I knew I had to give cancer the two fingers. I knew that as well. So I was sitting one night and I said to my husband, I want to do some fundraiser. I want to raise money and I want to do something that's different, that makes a difference, that's genuine, transparent, and helps the regular person on the ground. Because I found, and I still find, there are so many battles with red tape and applying for things and services in this country. I'm going to try and change that if I can. So my husband's like, so what are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just going to raise money some way. I'm going to do something like he said, why don't you share all your strategies that you've learned? Because I'm a, I'm a real journal person. I journal all the time. I, I call it my daily analysis. So every night I sit down and I analyze the day and ask myself, like Marie Kondo, what joy and what spark joy. Um, so I thought, who would want to listen to me? I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a, you know, um, I'm a teacher and a mom. And he was like, okay, you're always kind of indirectly advising people. You know, people kind of go, how did you do that? And how did you? So I was like, look, I'll write it and see. So I kind of just in the car in the pandemic because I didn't have an office I go to the car because it was nice and warm and I'm a cold creature and it was quiet because the whole house was turned into three classrooms with my own kids and I was homeschooling and teaching online as well so it was chaotic so with the iPad and I started to just write and then I started to try and research um, publishing and then I realized I couldn't afford to publish the book so um, I did a self-publishing course and so I literally did the course each month and wrote as I and edited as I went along and then I launched my book and then I couldn't afford to print the book. So I put a GoFundMe up um, and I had the print cost within a week. Um, and I downloaded, I had to download Facebook actually for the first time. I'm one of those uh, dinosaurs that never had Facebook. <laughs> but the, uh, the editing company or the printing company, they were like, you know, we send you the link every week. And I was like, uh, how are we going to send it an email? And they were like, no, Catherine, you dial in on Facebook. And I was like, Probably on Facebook. I don't know how to. So I had to download Facebook and Instagram and all that um, for the first time. So um, I went down to my bedroom and I just said, "Hi, I'm Catherine. I wrote this book. Can you help me sell it?" And within ten days, I had sixty-five stockists from pubs, chemists, and they were brilliant because all the bookshops turned me down. Every journalist I emailed turned me down um, for interviews. Every radio station, and every night for fifty-two weeks, I emailed somebody every night. Um, and eventually someone gave me a chance and the next person gave me a chance and I just kept, I, I suppose I believed in myself because I was the only one that could back myself um, and then I, I sent an email off to Dunn Stores and I said, I just chance it and they stopped it nationwide for me and then I started to pop up there and I raised 100,000 between World Cancer Day 27, 2022 and World Cancer Day 2023. Um, and rather than giving that bulk of money away, I wanted to see where my money was going. I wanted to have that control over it. And I wanted people to see 
where it was going as well. So I bought two cars for the palliative care nurses in Marymount and gave 50,000 to a PhD student for research because um, so my dad died in Marymount. And if the drug, drug that he needed actually was launched the day of my book, um, so it was five years too short. So I suppose that's why I wanted to give money to research as well. Um, and then from the people I met and the stories I've heard and the connections I made and the very fact that I, for the first time in my grief, felt not alone, that I couldn't walk away from it. So I've now set up my own charity called Hope to Cope, so I'm supporting cancer survivors. And we're, we're um, continuously doing fundraisers that are on the ground helping someone like myself that doesn't qualify for anything because we work or because we you know don't roll over and kind of die I suppose in the corner so just you know people that need things and putting things in place in place for them so there's three targets of the charity to fundraise to advocate and to um, I suppose support and create a little network for people for survivors um, and that's me in a nutshell I suppose a long nutshell <laughs> thank you <laughs> fantastic and Aideen Thank you, Catherine. Um, so, hi everyone, my name is Aideen Stack. Um, I am a health psychologist I, in private practice, so I am going to the name Whole Health Psychology. Um, so just to give a bit of background on myself, I guess my, my story, um, I was born, I grew up uh, here in Cork, um, and I was doing my leaving search and I was kind of thinking, oh, what do I want to do, what do I enjoy? Um, doing and I kind of landed on psychology. I was always really interested in people and human behavior and figuring out why the hell we do what we do. Um, so I uh, studied applied psychology at UCC. Um, and those two years, um, did I say three? Yeah, three yeah. years um, <laughs> were a lot of fun, to be honest. I really enjoyed college. Um, I learned a whole lot. Um, but applied psychology is a real kind of broad um, undergrad. You learn about all different aspects of psychology from um, like research-based psychology, organizational psychology. It just gives you an, an underpinning um, of all the different avenues you could go down. Um, so I got to my third year and I was kind of thinking of oh, what avenue might I like to go down and um, I did think about kind of medicine for a while and going down the, the, the medical route because I was always really interested in health and illness and, and well-being um, and to be really quite honest I've never heard of health psychology it wasn't something that was introduced to me in, in my undergrad um, and one of my friends was going to do um, a psychology degree and a master's in Leiden University in the Netherlands. And she was my best friend at the time. And I thought, God, I'd love to go over there now with her. That'd be great <laughs> crack. Um, so I looked up Leiden and I found they had a master's in health psychology. And I was reading it and I was thinking, geez, this really marries like two passions of mine. You have psychology and mental health, mental well-being, and then illness and physical health and how the two are so deeply interconnected and interlinked with each other. So I thought, yeah, that sounds like a bit of me. I'm going to apply. And off we went the following September. Um, and so I went to Leiden University um, in the Netherlands. I lived over there for a year. Um, again, really enjoyed it. I kind of spread my wings. I'd lived at, um, in home up until that point. Um, and I guess in my um, 
over there I learned a whole lot that was a really intensive degree much different to my degree in in UCC and um, it's much more practical based I learned about the actual practice of being a psychologist um, and then that big component of um, how our physical health and physical health conditions impact our mental health. Um, I did a, a study, a, a research thesis on um, medically unexplained symptoms, um, which are, is a big umbrella term for things like um, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, um, chronic fatigue, chronic pain, all of these um, <coughs> diagnosis or disorders that don't have that don't show up on tests right um and it was really interesting because now i guess yeah, in my my practice i meet people every every day really who have kind of a physical health component to their mental health struggles um and not everybody has a term for it not everybody has a, an ibs or cfs or chronic pain but it is very rare that I meet someone who's struggling with their mental health and nine times out of 10 people come with a mental health reason that doesn't have a physical health component to it. And so that year in Leiden really ignited this, this passion for health psychology in me. Um, as part of that, I uh, was to do an internship um, and I did look in the Netherlands, but I thought, you know, no, it would probably be better for me to come back to Ireland um, to kind of get into the, I guess, the psychology world um, at home. And so I did an internship in the CUH uh, with the clinical psychologist who was working um, in the high health psychology space um, there, because in Ireland, we don't have um, a health psychologist role within the health system it's it's something that is very small growing but um even like especially back then i'm not that old it wasn't that long ago but <laughs> health psychology really wasn't a thing so i did my internship um with that clinic like she was working with um people who were recently discharged so outpatients um with quite severe i would say um both mental and physical health presentations so people who were really physically unwell um and had quite significant mental health components to that as well so again it was baptism by fire i learned a whole lot but during that time as well <clears throat> i really started to feel my own mental health start to to wobble a little bit i was really struggling with with anxiety um you know i remember being awake late at night, worrying about, ironically, my own health, right? So my anxiety kind of manifested itself in a health component. So ironic, right? And I, and I see that now, but at the time, my worries were, you know, I've got all these types of different illnesses and diseases, and I, I would be that person who would have a pain in their toe, go to Dr. Google and be, yep, yeah, all right, I'm, I'm gone, I'm dead. I mean, I don't even have, 24 hours to live, right? And I know it sounds a little silly and a little funny when you when you talk about it, but that was was really real for me. I, I really struggled with it. Um, and I look back now and I think, what helped? And I think um, the psychologist that I was working with at the time actually acknowledged it to me that this is what it sounds like. It sounds like health anxiety. And it just that kind of validation was a huge thing for me to to recognize okay 
it's, it's health anxiety and I began to look at my mind in a different way and I remember at that time I came across um, acceptance and commitment therapy which is a, um, a therapeutic <coughs> intervention we have CBT we have ACT we have CFT DBT all these different ones but acceptance and commitment therapy really um, sung to me because it was about looking at your mind in a different way and kind of seeing the mind as a part of the self and seeing anxiety as a part of the self, but it's not the full self. So I began, I kind of created this anxiety character in my mind. And I, um, you know, I said that that was what was telling me that there was something wrong with me. And it, it, it really started to kind of sit with me. So, you know, over time, I guess my anxiety dial all down. Um, so I finished my internship, then I worked with the, um, the HSC as an assistant clinical psychologist because I thought, okay, I, I think I'm going to go down the clinical route. And to be honest, that was because there wasn't a lot of other options there for me as, as a um, psychology graduate. I knew I wanted to be a practicing psychologist, um, so I thought it was going to be clinical psychology because here in Ireland that, that does tend to be the route. And we do have counselling psychology as well, but the I guess the circles I was working in, um, clinical psych was the one that was um, very much there in front of me. Um, and so the the process to get into clinical psychology in Ireland is, is really difficult. Um, there are very few places and hundreds of people applying for this. So there's six universities, as far as I know, um, that do the clinical psych courses and they each have like between five and eight places. And it was a lot of stress, a lot of competition. Um, I'd applied, I didn't get in, I was disappointed, but I was also saying, you know, this is my first time applying. People apply five, six, seven times before getting in. So I thought, look, okay, I'm coming to the end of my assistant psychology role um, in the HSC. Why don't, why don't I go travel for a little while and just take a break, see the world. I always had that passion for traveling. So um, I went with my friend, we went to Thailand for a little while, um, and then we went to New Zealand. And I remember getting to New Zealand and being like, oh, this is far from home, but it looks like great fun. Um, and we did the big tourist thing. We were backpacking around the place, lived in different hostels, did all sorts of jobs, you can imagine, nothing illegal, but um, <laughs> cleaning hostels, restaurants, cafes, cleaning toilets in a hotel, painting houses, I did upholstery, anything you can imagine, right? Which was really fun and really great. And I met some incredible people, including my husband, who um, is a New Zealander and he's now back here with me. Um, but it got to that point where I thought, right, I've had my fun now, I need to get back to my passion. I need to get back to psychology and mental health because I think I needed to have that kind of, it was about a year or so of, you know, having a bit of crack, doing all these different things, meeting different people. But in my core, I know I knew what was, what I wanted to do was mental health. So we were living in a small town in New Zealand at that time. Um, so not a lot of um, kind of, mental health things around but luckily there was a new organization that just had started there and um, working with young people in the local high schools or secondary schools um, so based on my master's degree i was hired as um, a youth mental health therapist um, so working really closely with the, the high schools so kind of going in on a kind of a 
I guess, school counsellor basis. And then we also had um, an office in the town and young people would come to us. So I was working with young people between the ages of 13 and 25 with all sorts of different mental health presentations. And because this, the town was so underserviced, um, you know, you could, we were meeting people or I was working with young people who I guess were on this really broad spectrum of some people were just, you know, struggling a little bit with anxiety and maybe a bit of low mood. And some people had quite significant, severe mental health issues. So luckily, I had a great MDT around me, other psychologists, um, we had social workers, we were linked in with, us with a psychiatrist. Um, so I worked there for around a year and a half. And again, I loved it, but there was that fire in my belly that I wanted to get my, my training and um, that degree to be a psychologist. Because at the time, even though I had my master's, I couldn't use the term um, psychologist. So I spoke to Matt, my, my husband, and we thought, OK, look, let's move to Auckland. Matt's family were up there. Um, that was the big city. That was where the university was. That was where the other jobs were. Um, so I got on. The computer and I applied for um, a job as at the time a youth worker with um, an organization called Canteen which I think we have here as well in Ireland so it's a youth cancer organization um, supporting young people between again the ages of 13 and 25 who either they themselves had a cancer diagnosis or had done in the past or one of their family members had done or they were bereaved by cancer um, so I went to the interview and just after I left, I got a phone call and I thought, oh, God, it's, I didn't get that name at all. They're ringing me way too fast. And she said, actually, Dean, we want you to apply for the, um, the therapist role um, because we think you're way overqualified for the youth worker role. And we do have another, we have a psychologist here on board with us and we think you guys would work perfectly together. So a few weeks later, off we were, packed the cars, moving up to Auckland and I started the, the job at, at Canteen. And I really do see that as a, as a turning point in my career as a psychologist because I was um, two of my colleagues were health psychologists and at that point I knew obviously health psychology was a thing but I'd never seen it in practice. Um, so both of them um, two amazing women had been through the training program at Auckland University, University of Auckland, um, which was literally only across the road from the canteen um, headquarters. And they really encouraged me to apply for this role. Now, in the meantime, that job at canteen, oh my God, it was, again, you know, such a, I look back and I think that was a really difficult time. I was holding, so much grief and so much uh, just space for these young people to talk about these the most difficult things that have been happening in their lives. Um, trying to process their own cancer diagnosis, trying to process that of a sibling or a parent, um, or that their parent had, had passed away or their sibling had passed away. And I learned so much from my colleagues. And again, I did... Um, further training in that acceptance and commitment therapy, which I spoke about before, um, in-person and online training. And ACT fits so beautifully with people who are living with health conditions because it looks at, okay, I'm living with this thing. I don't like it. I don't want it. I, I certainly don't want it. And of course, a health condition. But 
how can I live a meaningful life alongside this? What can I do, even if it's something so small, that's going to help my mental health and my well-being? Um, and of course, it's looking at uh, talking about the worries and you know living with the fear. Is this going to come back? What's going to happen to me down the line? Um, so that time was, and I, I'm always getting emotional thinking about it because there was so much grief, but there was so much joy as well in it. Um, uh, it's one of the most, I think, will be one of the most special jobs I've ever had. Um, connecting so deeply with, with families who are at that place in their life. Um, so I'm so grateful for that that role. Um, sorry, I feel like I'm really talking. But, um, then I went on to do my health psychology training, which was uh, a two-year course at the University of Auckland, um, mainly internship-based, but also research and project-based. Um, and I did a one-year internship in my second year in a primary care um, facility in Auckland, which over there, um, actually the mental health service has this amazing um, primary care service where a person presents to the GP with mild to moderate mental health um, issues and they get funneled to a psychologist, right, which would be incredibly brilliant if we could have that here in, in Ireland. Um, and that was the, the service I was working with in New Zealand. Um, again, because I was a health psychologist, um, I was mainly getting referred people living with, with chronic health conditions. So things like um, type 1 or type 2 diabetes, um, Parkinson's disease, and inflammatory bowel disease. Again, your um, medically unexplained symptoms, IBS, chronic fatigue, chronic pain. Um, so I learned so much about how to work with people who were presenting with mental health issues alongside their physical health conditions and how the two of them are feeding into each other, feeding back off each other and what we can do to help both of them. In the midst of my internship, I was really unwell myself with inflammatory bowel disease. So I have ulcerative colitis, um, which um, some people haven't heard of, but it's it's um, very similar to Crohn's disease, it's kind of Crohn's first cousin. Um, and I was in and out of hospital myself five or six times that year of my internship. And I remember saying to my gastroenterologist uh, at the time in New Zealand, could stress have anything to do with this? And she looked at me and she said, no, there's not a lot of research to suggest that stress has anything to do with inflammatory bowel disease. I thought, right, I feel like that's wrong because <laughs> I'm looking back at my time in hospital and the week, the two weeks before that, you know, there either there was something happening or I was planning a wedding at the time as well, or you know, there was a, a test or an exam or something. And I thought, yeah, no, she's I'm gonna look further into this myself based on my own knowledge and my own training. Um, and so that's where my further specialist um, passion came for the gut-brain connection um, and how our gut health affects our mental health and how our mental health and our stress response impacts on, on our gut and our inflammatory system. So long story short, I came home to Ireland last year um, and I was kind of dabbing or dabbing in, in different areas go down and there, as I said there's no health psychology field here in Ireland so I decided to set up my own private practice um, and it really seems like there is a lot of need there for health psychologists in Cork even um, all around Ireland because people are coming you know it's um, I'm 
I'm so grateful to say that the practice is thriving um, and you know people coming with their physical health conditions alongside mental health um, yeah so I, I feel so grateful to do something that I'm so passionate about every day and something that is close to my heart as well because I'm with some experiences. Fantastic and last but not least Emily. Hi everyone um, my name is Emily, Emily Murphy so um, I'm a nurse and a psychotherapist and I am not going to lie, I had no idea what I was going to do when I was 16 or 17, putting things into Leaving Cert, hope of the best. And when I did, I put in for nursing, and I put in for a PE teaching actually as well, and I was going to be a PE teacher, <coughs> very ambitious. Um, it didn't work out anyway and I got intellectual disability nursing and I went into college when I was 17, I was a little baby, and um, when I was 17 then I was uh, working in college, that was fine, and someone approached me to be a care assistant um, inside the co-foundation here in Cork, and um, I was like, yeah, that's great, sounds like a good idea, so went along with that as well, it's kind of one of those things where I think, you know, whatever path you're on, you just kind of get steered in some direction, wherever you are, and that's kind of what happened at the time, and then before I knew it, I was 17 in a caring role, um, not knowing how to look after myself, mind you, but looking after other people at the time, and I was working with adults, uh, everyone who was older than me, <laughs> and it was uh, disability based at the time, so that's what my background is in, is in the disability sector. And I studied for four and a half years of nursing, um, which was all kinds of fun and chaos and crazy and hard and everything that you could imagine, but it was, it was lovely. Um, and I learned loads about disability, I learned loads about nursing, and I was working in it at the time, so I felt like I had this upper hand, you know, I felt like I knew what I was doing. Um, went out into the big red world when I was 21 as a staff nurse. Um, again, not having a clue what I was doing, really, at, at the face of it. Um, worked in COPE still, and I was still working with adults. This time I was in a, a what was called at the time, a behaviour unit. Um, probably not a really acceptable term right now, um, but it was a behaviour unit at the time which uh, consisted of adults with autism, ADHD, um, intellectual disabilities, but then they were paired with mental health conditions. And that's where I first got my taste for mental health and being like, God, I, there's something going on here that, geez, we, I don't think this is about the disability now anymore, <laughs> this is definitely deeper. Um, and I started to understand how we could, you know, to talk to people who are non-verbal and understand what they were going through and understand through these non-verbal cues that there is more going on than the CI and that everyone is really individual and I was like oh this I, I love this I love this and then I worked there for uh, a long time but I got to that stage which is a running theme throughout uh, my career uh, where I got to a stage where I was like oh, I feel like I've done it a lot here now and I'm bored and you know I was like I need another challenge and um, so flipped it on its head and I was like do you know what I'm working with adults with behavioural difficulties I'll go work with children in a respite it sounds brilliant so went and did that uh, worked with kids with complex needs medical needs and um, intellectual disabilities autism ADHD as well in a respite it was such a rewarding job it was amazing the kids were fantastic um, it was a beautiful place to work it was chaos um, but it was amazing and I really got a passion then for you know, this is actually, you know, I was working with people in a behaviour unit um, who had these kind of long-term mental health conditions. And I was starting to see, I'm working with kids here who are school age, primary school age, to 18, and I'm seeing it already. This is a similar theme to what I've seen as an adult. I'm like, oh, there's something that we can get ahead of here, I think. Um, so I started looking down how I could 
do that as a nurse and whatever because when you're on the floor you don't have time to pee not a mind to do these extra things so you know it's kind of one of those situations where I was like I'll have a look and I'll see and I got into looking at cognitive behavior therapy and I was like oh that looks really interesting I could like how that looks and it would fit with my clinical nurse specialist role that I wanted to get into and all these shiny things um and went to do that and then obviously the world turned around and COVID happened and you know uh, nursing was not what I thought it was when COVID happened so um 2020 hit all of us and obviously everyone in the room like a ton of bricks but it definitely hit me like a ton of bricks um and I remember I got a phone call I was working mind you in a respite with kids um with intellectual disabilities and I got a phone call being like you're going into a COVID ward there next week and they're short of nurses I was like that's fantastic um I don't know about that um so I had two days to prepare and was going in as the lead as well um so I was whatever age I was I'm not at old, I was 24, maybe 25, and I was the person in charge um, of that place as well. So um, they were like, you would be managing the team and you'd be managing the patients. And I was like, fantastic. Yeah, it's, that's not panic stations at all. It's not breakdown material. So that was a, a really trying time. I remember the first day specifically I went in, there was um, nine patients, all women, all amazing people, and they were God love them, like they were looking at all of us in our alien suits in the PPE, being like, You're not our usual staff, not me. And basically looking, being like, This, my world is also turned upside down. Their families weren't coming in anymore. They had no idea who we were. They couldn't see our faces because we couldn't let them out. And I was trying to like put it under the thing, being like, Hi, I'm Emily, and, like writing it on my thing, but it doesn't make any difference. The personal touch was gone. And everything I knew about nursing as an intellectual disability nurse was gone. And um, it was incredibly stressful. And that first day, I there was no one in there to help because nobody was allowed in because obviously they honored COVID. So the management, you know, they're very protected. So they were outside like a mile away being like, hi, if you need anything, we're, we're there. Um, but on the inside, you're on your own. And I had two staff to manage and the three of us were in charge of the nine people who were dropping like flies, to be honest. Um, so it was very stressful. And I was trying to learn all their names while trying to learn how to manage COVID, which I didn't know, which again, in March 2020, I think we all thought we were going to die just by breathing. So, you know, it was kind of that internal battle of ourselves and then who you're managing as well. Um, and I remember specifically, I, they were like, you need to get on the medication straight away in the morning. The medication round takes like an hour and a half. I was like, Jesus, right, okay. I don't even know their names yet, but fine. So I started doing the medication round, but some people were nonverbal and you know, it was quite a, a bit of a challenge to get to know everyone. And I was looking at pictures, pictures of about five or six years old. And I was like, that looks like her, doesn't it? And I was like, going over to the other staff, being, do you think that's her? And then going over, asking her name. And she was kind of looking at me, basically like, I know who you are, girl. I'm not talking to you, you know, which was fair enough. Um, and I went over and I said the lady's name. And I was like, said her name. And she looked up for me and she said a completely different name. I didn't even know she spoke. And that was the, the moment for me when I was like, well, fuck, this is, that was really dangerous because the medication I was about to give her could have made her very sick. So into the toilet I went for an old breakdown, um, had a big cry for myself and came back out and I was like, right, okay, you just have to get on with it now. This, there's nine people here relying on you and there's another two staff relying on you as well. You have to figure it out. So I took the staff into the kitchen and was like, look, if you want to cry, then just cry, okay? Look, we're all going to cry, they can't see it under masks. It's absolutely fine. And we just kind of, gelled as a team kind of after that I think we were all once it was out there that everyone felt the same it was a it was a lot better and about a week later we were having like pizza parties and dance parties and you know it was all very dramatic with resuscitations and stuff but then there was this lovely part of connection 
even though connection had been taken away. So um, that was a really difficult time. And then I was um, made manager of the area. So in that little bit for me, you know, they were like, oh, lockdown's over. And they, they kidded us for a little bit. I went back to my old position with kids. And I was like, oh, home. And um, then they made me manager. So that was another added stress um, in that place. And then um, I got my second vaccine in my arm but it didn't go into my arm it went into my bone and that was not great <laughs> so my whole arm collapsed it stopped working basically and um, i couldn't use it for anything i was in a sling because they thought that it was just like after breaking you know they didn't really know what to do um and i couldn't really do anything for myself so i couldn't drive i couldn't cook and i definitely couldn't look after kids so everything that I knew about nursing was also gone and now I couldn't nurse either you know so COVID really rocked my world to be honest and then I had actually been in a place at the time where I was kind of struggling um because with my I had put on weight during COVID and you know I was feeling bad about myself and my own skin and things like that and all very superficial things but then things were not superficial but my arm went dead basically because I was waiting for my partner who um, would be coming home in the evening to cook dinner because I couldn't chop anything because I couldn't use my arm and there was savage pain I couldn't go for a walk I couldn't I was a mad runner couldn't run um, couldn't go to the gym couldn't do anything that I was usually doing um, couldn't drive I was just stuck in the house as if it, like we were already in COVID as if it wasn't bad enough now I really couldn't do anything for myself either uh, so I felt fairly useless and that definitely took a toll on me so I did a lot of you know, inner work at the time, trying to figure out who the hell I was. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever sat down myself um, as much as I did in those six months. So, um, you know, when the, the arm wasn't working and your body stops working, there's there's a time when your mind works instead, you know, and it was either I was going to work with my mind or it was going to work against me. So um, I started to try and understand. I, I should have mentioned that at this time, I was also studying cognitive behavior therapy, which is, you know, a really good decision with all the stress that was going on at the time. Um, so I finished that and um, then I realised, oh, you know what, my arm doesn't work. So, you know, I don't know what the story is going to be with this, if it's going to work again or not. Um, so I started getting physio, which is incredibly painful. And my physio is fabulous, but I hated her so much. And <laughs> she, you know, was like, look, it's going to take a good couple of months. So it took about nine months and I started getting a bit better. Um, but then I realised, you know what, I'm never really going to be able to nurse again. Like, you know, even not just physically but now mentally i'm in a different place than i was and i don't know what i want and i have all these things and i have all my values have changed and blah, 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 all these things i learned about myself had really come to grow and i had to do uh, when you're becoming a therapist to make do your own therapy as well on yourself so you can't be a therapist you'd be a pretty crappy therapist to be fair if you hadn't figured your own stuff out so they make you do your own therapy as well so i figured out a lot of stuff about myself and you know i had tried to progress in the hsc and in different ways but the only progression in the hsc is management unfortunately and that wasn't me you know i wanted to make an impact i wanted to make a difference i wanted to get in front of um people's mental health that i was seeing that proactive sense that i was talking about so um i gave my director of nursing at the time an ultimatum and i just said look here's the story i have all the qualifications for this amazing role that I've given you a job description for and a big business plan for that I've, you know, schemed for the past six months when I had no arm. So here it is. And here's the proposal. I wanted to help kids with ADHD and autism and um, with behavior difficulties. And it was a huge need. It wasn't, I just didn't pluck it from the sky. It was a huge need. Um, and I was like, look, I need to know that something's going to happen here because I can't nurse. 
Um, and she was like, you will, you will, yeah, no problem, no problem. So we, we want you to stay, want you to stay, no problem. Um, so I was like, great, grand, uh, you know, I'll, I'll wait, so. Um, so I did, and then about two months later, I was like, hmm, there's <laughs> nothing happening here. So I'm back up and she was kind of refusing to see me, refusing my call, refusing my emails and all that. And I was like, do you know what, now I'm going to throw on a sling and I'm going to go and knock on the door. So I did, and I went in and I was like, look, here's the story. Three weeks, if I don't see something, I'm going to have to figure it out for myself because this is not for me anymore. I want to have an impact on people and I'm not having an impact in management. All I'm doing is making people's lives hell and telling them they can't have holidays. It's terrible. So, <laughs> you know, I don't want to be like that anymore. And she was like, oh, you know, I." she called my bluff. She was like, we won't be able to, to do anything for at least a year and a half or two years. And I was like, no matter. Here's my notice. I had no job. <laughs> I had nothing lined up. And I was like, yeah, bye. So, so went home. <laughs> went home with no job, no prospects. And I was like, right, okay, I have to make something work now. And that's where the business came from. So the, my business name is The Mind Mechanic. And that was uh, cleverly caught up over a bottle of wine with me and my sister, who designed my logo. And while she was also a little bit tipsy. So, you know, we, I was thinking about how I wanted to get ahead of the, what I'd seen in, in critical care, basically. I'd seen people at the, the cusp of it when it was too late. And I was like, no, there's something that can be done here. There's education that can be done around mental health. There's conversations that need to be had. There's a lot of things that we can do. There's therapy I can do, you know, that I'm not allowed to do in my role for some crazy reason. Um, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to incorporate all this into a business. And that's where I am now, a year into that. So I do therapy, I do workshops, I do education. Um, around mental health. My current focus is on teenagers and parents of teenagers, um, but I've worked with all kinds of uh, people since the business has started, and I can confidently say I've touched more lives in the past year than I did in my 10 years of nursing. So, you know, there's a lot to be said for trying to have that impact as well. So that's me. Fantastic. Um, I think you all gave a real insight into yourselves there but also why it's important to you to look after um, mental well-being and I suppose you're all in different ways but you're all helping other people to look after their mental well-being as well and I suppose you you have touched on why it's important but I suppose do you find it very rewarding the work that you do you do um, I suppose I know you're doing research at the moment, Emily. Um, I'm talking to them, sorry. <laughs> I, should have, I should have specified. Um, you're doing research at the moment um, about the teenagers and, and more so to do with the, the parents of teenagers. And can you talk to us a little bit about the, that research that you're doing? I know that you are finding it quite rewarding and yeah. and it is, I suppose, coming back to your why, why it's important. Yeah. So. so it actually didn't start out as research for parents of teenagers. It started out for research for teenagers because I was like, oh, I can get ahead of it by going to the teenagers fantastic so I was like I'll go talk to a load of teenagers and see what I could help them with their mental health with they did not want to talk to me so I went and I talked to teenagers who were like you're a therapist like mortal for me I don't want to talk to you you know and it was a lot of that kind of perception because that's what I was planning on doing was making like an app or something that they could you know log into and learn things and get ahead of it for themselves learn how to self-care all that kind of stuff would be fantastic they did not want it and they really did not want to talk to me so when I was talking to them obviously a lot of it was being set up through the parents and the parents were like oh, I can't believe and all this kind of stuff <laughs> in my back and then that started very natural conversations with the parents um, and I was like oh the problem isn't actually with the teenagers it's with the parents and I was like these parents are struggling big time um, you know teenagers 
I don't know how many people have teenagers in the room, but teenagers are tough and, you know, they're more clever than we are. And, <laughs> you know, um, it's a tough time. And I think one thing that led to all of that was me starting with teenagers and being told absolutely not. And then talking to the parents who were like, you know what, um, I, like, this is my story. So then I started to talk to parents about their story of raising a teenager and largely raising a teenager with mental health issues. Um, it was all kinds of interesting and amazing and devastating as well to hear the stories from people um, and then that really snowballs into me talking to tons of parents who would just break down on the phone being like oh my god nobody's ever listened to me nobody's ever talked to me about this you know and like there's nothing there like I, I um, like I have a big sheet of quotes from um, the research and some of them are just devastating you know there's there's one that always stays with me and there's there's two actually and one is you know I often stand outside the room to make sure they're breathing at night time and the other one was kind of you know I I wish you would never bring anything to our teenagers again because they're too aware and I don't know how to talk to them and you know I would sacrifice my health in order to do anything for them but now I'm on I'm on the floor I've nothing left I've nothing left to give and you know I was like geez I did not realize it was this bad I really didn't um, so that has made me completely pivot toward that now and try to put something in place where, and you know, the big thing that was, that was coming back in that research was that the parents felt that no other parent was going through this. And I was talking to every other parent who was going through this. I was like, oh no, you know, Mary down the road is as well, like you just don't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of what I'm, I'm getting from it is that lack of connection, the lack of education, the lack of, you know, awareness that actually, you know what, parenting a teen without a mental health condition is really, really tough. Parenting a teen with a mental health condition is really tough as well. Um, and, you know, that communication element, how do you talk to a teen is slamming the door in your face and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And they were like, oh, you, you can teach me how to communicate with them. <laughs> like the alien in the room. And like, yeah, yeah, I can, yeah. So it's kind of after spiraling into that. Um, so that's the kind of background of the research, um, which is, is still ongoing. Um, so anyone who wants to talk to me, please do. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's it's really kind of opened up an avenue where I think that there's a much larger problem that's than being spoken because I think I'm talking to a lot of moms at the moment. Um it's a lot I've got one dad. One dad who's flying the flag, the rest of moms. And I think it, one thing that's coming in, in the, as a theme in that is that because you're a mom, you just have to get on with it and you don't talk about it because there's no point in talking about it because this is your life, this is your child, you have to do it. It's just something you have to do and you do. But you also, you can talk about it, you know, so that's kind of what this is spiraling into then. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that's a really important point that, you know, it kind of, it's with mental health in general, there is this thing of like, oh, I just have to get on with it. Mm. Like, and this attitude of like, oh, well, just, you know, we were actually talking before we started recording on, you know, go for a, go for a walk. Not, yeah. Walking off sport. <laughs> and this sort of attitude of like, you know, well, you just have to, you know these are the cards you were dealt go on go deal with it mm-hmm. but like you don't have to do it on your own and I think that that's why it's so important for like the research you're doing to open up these conversations and with parents so that they realize that they aren't alone and that kind of goes across the whole spectrum of mental health as well that like we need to have these conversations like it's really important like um campaigns like the sea change campaign um, showing that people are willing to open up to conversations. I suppose that's the aim of this podcast as well, to open up those conversations. So it all kind of comes together like that. Um, 
and I suppose the work that you're doing, Aideen, as well, um, I know you mentioned the, the gut health and brain health and, you know, the chronic pain, all of those things. And the mind-body connection really is is where your work, and, and I know that it's something that's touched yourself as well. But, like, prior to the last couple of years, I think there hasn't been really an understanding of that. And, you know, I suppose as someone who has a chronic pain thing going on at the moment, I have hip dysplasia I'm waiting on hip surgery where they're going to break my pelvic bone and push my hip back together in um, the new year. And like, I can't do anything. I can't play with my kids at the moment. I can't, I have two kids, they're five and three and they don't understand why mommy's hip is still sore. You know, for them, it's been sore forever. And I'm always just sitting down. I can't run around with them. I can't, I actually sat down on the floor uh, last Saturday. Um, it was the first time I got down on the floor with them in a long time. And I spent all day Sunday in agony, absolute agony, couldn't move. And I think like the work that you're doing in I, even just the acknowledgement of that it does have an impact on your mental health, mm -hmm. because I, I don't think prior to this, like in the last couple of years in particular, there has been advances in it. But I don't think prior to this, there was that recognition of, you know, this is it's really hard to have a physical ailment going on and it does have this impact on the mental health and do you find that there is still I suppose a way to go with the recognition of that? Totally and utterly yeah and um, now where I'm at I guess knowing what I know through my research to my training to my practice I think how does everybody not put this two and two together? Because, you know, the way I'm trained, we, we call it the, the biopsychosocial model of health. Okay, so you have your, your biology, which is your physical health, your um, health conditions, but also things like um, your, um, your sex, your hormones, your um, genetics, um, maybe different conditions, you're, you're born with genetics, so a big biology factor you have the social factor of your health so we're, we're humans we don't live in isolation we're, we're pack animals essentially so we live in in a social group so friends family wider community the environment that you're living in and how that can affect you know your your health overall because you know if if your family is going through something if your friends are going through something you're feeling that too because we we do we're biologically programmed to pick up on our social groups health and well-being as well so you have the the bio the social and then of course the the psychological component which is your perhaps um history of trauma your learned coping skills your level of resilience um things like your personality and so when I look at that, I'm like, isn't it obvious that our physical health is going to contribute to our mental health, that our mental health is going to contribute to our physical health? But I've only learned that over the last few years because I've, I've done that, that training, I've done that, um, those degrees. I really think we need to start teaching this to our little kids because you can't, we don't exist in isolation. We're not just a body. And we're not just a mind either. You know, I think when people, especially those who come to me, say with um, a mental health issue as their what we call primary presentation, you know, they talk all about um, their worries and their anxieties and their mood. Of course they do. And then I say, you know, I'm going to ask some questions now about your physical health. 
And I can see some people kind of rubbing their eyes sometimes. And I ask them about, you know, tell me about what you're eating. Um, what, what would be a typical day in, in your nutrition? I, I try not to use the word diet because it really don't, it doesn't have the best connotations. Um, and so people are like, oh, I don't eat breakfast. I don't eat breakfast. And, you know, I might have... Um, uh, I don't really like fruit and veg and, you know, I'm eating kind of takeaway a few days a week and, you know, it, as I'm trained, it's totally non-judgmental and validating their experiences. And then, you know, I ask them about their physical activity. Again, I try not to use the word exercise because activity can be anything. And people say, yeah, like I might go for a walk once a week or I work with a lot of teenagers as well. I do two full days in the clinic with teenagers and with them it's like, no, nothing. <laughs> I come home from school, I go to bed, and that's all they're doing, right? And then they, and then I ask them about their sleep. So um, I often draw kind of a, a stool of health, what I call. I mean, a physical stool that you sit on, not the other type of stool. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but you have the, the three legs of the stool, which is your sleep, your activity, and your nutrition. Sleep, I think, is the one that we really need to be focusing in on so much because without quality sleep, and quality sleep means different things to different people, your nutrition is going to be all over the place, your activity is going to be not so great because if you're tired, you're not going to want to, to move. And sleep is something time and time again I'm seeing people or people are saying to me, I can't sleep. I'm up all night, I'm worrying, or I'm waking up several times a night, or I hear this quite a bit, again, with, with our teenagers. I'm sleeping all the time. All I want to do is sleep. Um, so too much sleep can be just as destructive as too little sleep. Um, so what people come with is the mind and the worries and the anxiety. And what I talk about is, is a lot to do with the body because anxiety and other emotions is in of themselves live in our body. Right. When we feel anxious, we talk about, geez, I feel really shaky, or my heart is racing, or I feel like I can't breathe. Um, and if we're someone who's been living with even low-grade anxiety for a period of time, or you know, had something happen to us in the past, it's going to affect our physiology. You know, and there's plenty of research, and there's more and more coming out, especially around inflammation. So. That's something I'm, I'm super interested in. So, um, our inflammation markers in our blood raise when um, we're experiencing a mental health issue, especially depression and anxiety. And depression in particular mimics a lot of physical health conditions. So if you think about when you have a flu, right? You want to spend time in bed, you're feeling really low, you're feeling really tired, you just want to pull up the covers, you're sleeping all the time. Clinical depression has many of those symptoms as well because our body is in a state of inflammation and so that's why you know you cannot look at your mental and physical health as two separate entities they are one and together and then you have that social aspect as well um, and that's how I, I work with people from looking at those three different parts of the self and I like to kind of think about it in my mind as you know I see a person and they're like a jigsaw with lots of different pieces everywhere and, I, and we come in together and we put the jigsaw together and you know maybe in the first session with a teenager it might just be one jigsaw piece and then another one um, maybe with adults it can be a little bit more in the first session but that's my hope working together with that person is to 
put together their jigsaw piece and or their jigsaw um, mm. and you know really working with what they want for they for their health but also education and psychoeducation is such a huge component of what I do and talking about this kind of link between everything and what what we can do to help it. Fantastic. And, and I know, Catherine, you have lived experience of having, you know, that physical ailment. You know, you've gone through cancer yourself. You've also been a carer for someone who had cancer. And you've seen, I suppose, both aspects of that, the physical and the mental. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the charity that you've set up, you're helping people to look after themselves while they're going through this, this you know, awful time in their lives when they're dealing with cancer. But you're also helping their family through that support mm-hmm. part of it. And why was that important for you to have that element in the charity that you could support both the person themselves and their families while they're going through this? Yeah. Um, I suppose I'm never going to talk about something I don't know about. And I knew so much about that. I knew how lonely it was as a, a cancer patient. I didn't know anyone else my age that had cancer. I didn't know another mom that had cancer. I didn't know what it was like to go to an isolation unit for a week and leave my two children for the first time ever for a whole week. Um, I didn't know what it was going to be like to look after my dad. I didn't know what it was going to be like to watch him get weaker and weaker and eventually watch him and support him dying um, and how I would cope with that after. So I suppose they're all the things that I felt, oh, they're not there for me. Um, they need to be there for somebody else, you know, um, and maybe I'm going to put them in place. And I did realize that while they weren't in place, there was a community there, but I just didn't know how to tap into it. And every week when I popped up in Duns and put up my little pink stand, people come over, what's this? I would explain, it's my book. And when when I'd open up and say, well, I was in school yesterday and I'm a teacher. And, oh, you're doing this as a little hobby, you know? And I say, well, not really a hobby, kind of <laughs> a war mission. Um, and then they start chatting to me and realize, oh, we've got so much in common. And then they'd say, oh, I like cancer myself. And I'd say, oh, me too. Where are you? And I said, oh, my God, you're only like 30-something as well. And mm-hmm. even though I'm 48 now, I was in my 30s at the time. And instantly I felt, oh, my God, someone, because, you know, it's like anything. You don't get it until you get it. Mm-hmm. You don't get anything. I don't get what I haven't. I don't understand fully anything that I haven't been through. And I will never talk about something I haven't been through because it's, it's bullshit, really. You know what I mean? You don't talk about what you know, um, what you put your stamp on. And I knew cancer. I knew what it was like to look at it from both sides in. I would always say it was harder to be a carer than a patient. That's my own personal opinion. But from meeting people every week and people opening up and telling me their story, I felt I'm not alone. You know, that was the biggest gift. And when I went into it, I said, I'd like to find myself again. And I know that sounds really cringy, but I had lost myself and I liked myself. I had no problem with myself. You know, I was happy and grateful life, you know. Um, But I'd lost that person, you know. I, I... and people would say, you look so sad. And I was like, oh, I look sad. I've never looked sad. I always had a natural smile. Um, and that was always kind of my get out of jail card. I was very approachable and warm. And I never struggled making friends. And so when people were saying, you don't look happy and you're gone so thin, Catherine. Are you eating? Are you sleeping? And I was like, what are you on about? You know? And then I said, oh, my God, I don't even recognize myself. Nobody else recognizes me. Um, and ironically, I knew last year I was going to be... <laughs> Uh, disheveled from what I was taking on but I didn't mind people telling me I looked tired last year because I knew it was freaking tired I was tired because I was wrecked doing something I really wanted to see through um something that I, I knew was going to work um something that I knew I wasn't going to quit on but I also wasn't afraid of it not working either if that makes sense um because I was going to give it my best and if my best wasn't good enough 
that's okay, but it was going to be my best. And I was going to push every boundary, every fiber inside of me, because it was in honor of my dad. It was for my children so that they could see me as a strong person. And so it was quite selfish. A lot of people think it was selfless. There was a lot of selfless work involved in it, a lot of financial drain, emotional drain, physical drain, um, and a lot of resilience. And I drew on everything I had. I cried on that steering wheel most Friday nights. I <laughs> I wanted to quit so many times. I, I really, really did. So what I say it was selfish and selfless, it was. It was all of that. And as the weeks went on and people started to come over and have the chats and, oh, we don't want to dial a 1-800 number and talk to a phone number. We don't want to talk to... I was kind of thinking, yeah, I didn't dial any 1-800 number. I plowed on with everything in my life myself. You know, and even when, when we were teenagers and my parents... Where they were the first couple to get divorced in Cork, actually, because my, my mom left home when we were quite young. And I knew nobody else. All my friends, God, they all had mom and dad at home, and they all skipped down the driveway and lived happily ever after, whether they did or didn't. That was the image. Or I was going home to bag up the lads' clothes if they didn't tidy them up, or, you know, do the same stew dinner again, because that's all I knew what to do, you know. So I felt very alone a lot of times in my life because I didn't have that community, where now I have that community. and. When I was finished the fundraiser, I was kind of thinking, oh, I've all these people in my head, you know, and but I wonder how Mary is doing, and I wonder how Tracy is doing, and all these people that I've met, and how they're getting on now, and I wonder, did they finish their chemo? And, you know, it was just like curiosity, and I felt they were my friends, you know, um, and we hug, like I hug everyone I meet, and like, we hug, so we had a connection. Um, and then people were messaging me saying, you know, oh, I read your book, and, you know, I found this in it or whatever, and I'd say, okay, and I'd say, actually, hang on, I met someone in Duns in Dunamead that had a similar story too, and then I was connecting those people up, and then someone else would message and say something else, and I was doing all this, and I was kind of thinking, I need to keep doing the turn up on Duns every Saturday, but in a different way, that I physically couldn't give week 53, <laughs> and by week 42, I was kind of only on adrenaline at that point anyway. Um, but my point in it all is that people were saying to me, you look so well, you look so happy. And I'm like, I was not sick. I've not had a diagnosis of any strip. Mm. I am tapping wood here um, in any shape or form since I started this, despite being busier. And like my core has always been, I love being busy. If I'm not challenged, everyone wants to run away from me. So I need to be busy. I like to be busy creating. I don't like to be chaotic. I don't like to be around chaotic people. I'm quite peaceful and calm. Um, and I like order. And that's the way I operate. And I know all those things. So um, doing the charity now, I'm in control of that. And I know what I want to give back. And I know the people I want to give to. And I, I can read and I can see and say, well, your story is genuine. What are you struggling with? Um, now I'm doing advocacy work, I'm putting in petitions to the Oireachtas and saying I don't like this lifelong illness scheme, don't call it that if it's not a lifelong illness scheme, for all lifelong illnesses. My three lifelong illnesses are not on it. I've spent 17,000 on medication since I was diagnosed. That's discriminatory because, you know, I can't qualify for a medical card because I'm naughty, I work full time. You know, um, they told me, you know, that you know, when I met Michael Martin at, at the Cork show, I, I was shaking his hand and I was like, why are you incentivizing unemployment? <laughs> and he was like, just smile at the camera. <laughs> and I was like, but, but why? why? Why aren't you, you know? And it's that drive all the time because that's who I am. I can't sidestep and switch off and go, oh, that cancer doesn't matter today. Because every day I get up, I have to factor in so much 
in my day to cope with my lifelong illnesses, you know, like coming in here, can I hear? If someone says something, am I answering it the right way because I mightn't have heard the full sentence. I might talk over you, which appears rude, but it's, I just haven't heard you. Um, you know, I might have got the joke and everyone's laughing and then I'm, I FOMO. I <laughs> mean, um, my school, my job isn't equipped now because when I joined my job, I was a different physical person. So I can't hear in staff meetings, the hall, the acoustics, um, if, if children are all whinging and crying at the same time, I'm like, stop, I can't hear you all. You know, so I have to factor all that in. I have to factor yard duty. I have Rainer's disease. My, I, my bowel does not work. So I have a bowel pacemaker. So even standing on Dunn's, I have to factor in not eating because I can't go to the toilet or I will get diarrhea. Mm. You know, so I, I have to factor in I'm a celiac. I can't just eat a sandwich on the go. So it's all that I, I'm grateful and I tap into all the things that I'm grateful for. I am super organized. So those things aren't as big a problem to me as they would have been maybe to someone that isn't as organized. So that's tapping into my attitude of gratitude. You know, I have a great husband, I have great children, thank God. I have wonderful family, wonderful friends. People find it hard to say no to me for some reason as well. So I'm gonna get away that when I bake, bake for something. Um, and yeah, I just feel that when you're doing something that brings you joy and when you feel you're in sync with yourself, it just comes. I can't explain it. it. Just the goodness flows and the joy flows. And even though at the moment now I've taken on a big project, taking a loan and building my own little HQ because I'm telling my son to shush on PlayStation and I'm clearing the table from my office to make the dinner and then I'm sticking stuff to the fridge. So I need a little bit of space. And that was a big risk this year. That's my new risk. Um, to take out a loan and build that little room and I made it my way. I made it into a complete Barbie palace, you know, um, I don't, I'm not, I'm totally unapologetic about how I dress and show up and people would say that, oh, how long does it take you to get ready? It doesn't take me long to get ready, you know, if I'm, I'm organized, but I like to dress up. I don't want to look like I'm sick. I don't want to look like a squeaky gate. That's what I don't want to be a squeaky gate. Oh, my bladder is at me. My bowel is at me. My, my voice is going hoarse because I, I have no thyroid. And, you know, I don't want to be that squeaky gate because I know squeaky gates get oiled, but I don't want to be oiled. I want to oil myself, you know. Um, and I've come up with so many little analogies over the years to deal with little things, you know, and, and that's that's the way I, I float along. And um, But I've definitely found myself, I found a better version of myself through this and it's amazing when you give away, you get so much back mm -hmm. and when you ask for something and the universe gives it to you and you see the goodness in people, I mean the goodness I've seen, if I could, have, if I could bottle it, if I could explain it I would, um, but it's just been a gift, a, a gift from heaven probably, you know, it's definitely all over it in some way anyway. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and you mentioned there you are a very happy person yeah. in general. Like I've known you for probably a year and a half now, and you are probably the happiest person I know. Um, but what are the things that you do if you are having a particularly down day, or you know that you you need to look after yourself that bit more? What does self care look like? I suppose self care. I spoke earlier about that daily analysis, and that came from being at rock bottom. You know, um, I suppose when Dad had died, and there was so much going on, and I was like, oh my god. I'm going to have to start separating what I can change to like separate that into one area and then what I can change over here. So I couldn't change that he had died. I couldn't change that I may be sick again, but I could change how I cope with those things or how I pull myself through those things. So I just sit with myself and go, oh my God, okay. And my husband is great for advice. He'd say, just do one thing, just do one thing. So 
I, I decided to come up with this daily analysis where I sit at night and I kind of go, right, what broke me today, other than the whole big the grief thing. Um, I go, oh, gosh, yeah, I, I didn't want to go along collecting my son. Um, but I loved collecting my daughter. And I was like, it's nothing to do with my son. He's as joyous as me. He's, he's a pure laid back little rogue. He's gorgeous. But something about the journey to collect him and I couldn't understand. So I, for a few days I started to sit with it and I kind of, what is upsetting me? What's making me so nauseous? Um, like literally I'd pull over twice one day. I, I, was, I got sick. I, I, I rea. Um, I was, what is with this trip? Mm. And my husband said, but you're passing her father's door. Like, and I was like, I know, but he lives next door. It's very hard not to pass it, you know? And then I thought, it's not very hard not to pass it. I just go the long way, you know? So it was just checking in and realizing by taking that journey out, I felt actually so much better, you know? And like, I, I said, what else could I do? So I said, Colin, you could walk up to Centra. So it, it avoids that whole strip of, you know, so it was just really realizing what was taking all that joy, that little bit of joy that I was hanging on to with my fingernails at that point, what was taking that little bit of joy out of my day? And that was an example of that. So little things like that, just checking in and kind of going, it might be people, you know, and I did start a rating system, you know, that rating, you're a one, you're a nine, <laughs> you, you pissed me off, you're a three, you, know? uh, you didn't show up, you're back to a two now. Oh, but you're here today, you're a six now again. And when I had this rating system, because I'm desperate, I, I could be kicked up the bum 10 times and not learn. And my father had a rule, you know, get a kick up the bum first cat, fine. But if you bend over for the second one, shame on you, you know. Mm. But funnily enough, I, I was a slow learner with that. So when I started to grade people, it helped me cope with. So if Sandra rang me and Sandra would say, well, it's you're a seven and you were like, catch my embarrassed. I'd drop everything for you. But if you were two because you had done something and you didn't show up for me, whatever you did, <laughs> knowing me, I go, well, you know, I'd still be kind. And I'd say, look, I'd love to Sandra, but I genuinely can't. No, I, I probably can't, you know, but because you're two, I'm not putting myself under extreme pressure and putting up that boundary of you know you know you and then if you were 10 obviously you'd understand if i couldn't as well you know mm. so it's just helping me because some people come up the drive and i go oh, when you hear yourself or feel yourself going right <laughs> or you see a number on the phone and, go, oh. you know? and so they, i was like right they're actually threes or there are twos some people went to zero like i can't even look at your name coming up on the phone you know um and when i kind of realized it was only temporary stuff but when I started to click in on that, and I still do that, I kind of go, look, it's it's just Mr. Number Two or Little Miss Two, you know, you're fine. <laughs> don't, don't sweat it, just get over. Sing Mary had a little lamb in her head or whatever little strategy <laughs> while they're talking, and you get to the next point. And that's just the way it kind of went with me. But those simple things, but also just, like, I love cleaning and organizing. So for me, I'll just pull out a cupboard. I know that sounds really boring. It's not a trip to the pub or anything. It's get into that cupboard, head in, arse out. <laughs> sorted um i love doing the simple things with the kids you know watching tell it's it's never the big showy stuff and i'd love to say it is but it's not um it's just the pleasure in the sim and it's not anything to do with cancer i people mm. like, oh is it because you're going to die i go no i just always love simple <laughs> things you know just going out with the dogs or seeing the dogs do something funny like you know rolling around in the mud and trying to come into the couch you know um, it's just those little moments um yeah, those little, yeah. those little small, little small nuggets and laughter is is something I value and I love the chats. You know, I just I just love the simple, simple, simple things. Yeah, it's unsurprising that you mentioned your family there because I know that you are very family family orientated and obviously you know you cared for your dad and you cared for your brothers as well um, when they were they were growing up mm -hmm. because of the situation that you mentioned previously and and I think 
it is a lot of the time it is that really simple stuff and what is it for you Aideen what do you call on if you're struggling or if you for self-care what, what do you do firstly I'm going to caveat this because I often don't practice what I preach very well and um, I think especially my husband knows that um, so I was in clinical supervision last night with you know, my, my supervisor and he said you know what if you if this was one of your patients you know, one of your clients what would you tell them I'm thinking yeah okay but there are things I do do to, to manage myself um, and my, my well-being um, because I, I do tend to veer on the anxious side as I said before I do have that that worry part of my mind um, particularly around my own health the health of the people that I love um, but also just things that have happened in the future going over conversations that have happened in the past i think we all have a little bit of that um i know for myself a big component of my well-being is, is just getting outside whether that's standing out um just on the driveway um or going for a big walk um, i'm very lucky i live near the sea so going down to the beach sitting on the beach um Getting into the sea is something that I, I try to do at least once a week. It's something that I've, I've taken up over the last year, and that is now a huge part of my my well-being. Um, I guess my self-care practices. There's just something about getting into the freezing cold Irish Sea, um, and it takes your breath away in the worst way possible and in the best way possible. Um, and it's I've. I met such a beautiful community as well. Every Friday we meet and we do a swim and a sauna and we watch the sunrise and, you know, it's just really special. It feels like it's just you and these three or four other people in this in this little sauna and we're just chatting about the weekend or the week that's just been um, and then all going, ah, ah, when we get <laughs> So that's a huge component of it. Um, but yeah, it just taking a, a deep breath of fresh air um because over the last week i've been um i've had a bit of a back injury just my um pulled a muscle in my back and i'm going gaga because i can't go for my walk i can't go to the gym i've been able to do some yoga which is another really big part of my life um but really my my mind is spinning this last week because i can't go for my walk or i can't um go to the beach because i'm walking like a bit of a wonky donkey so yeah, last night or I, I finished supervision late about eight o'clock and I just opened the door and I went out and I just stood on, on the gravel outside and I just took some deep, slow breaths. It was cold, but it really helped to kind of calm my system. Um, I guess going back to my work um, and all that I do with talking about the, the nervous system and nervous system dysregulation, I try to think to myself, okay, am I feeling dysregulated? What are my dysregulation signs? And I know I get jittery, I get a bit shaky, I get a really bad headache when I'm feeling stressed, kind of a, a band headache. Um, and the mind races. So what do I need to do to, to regulate myself? the breath of fresh air um, yoga is another big thing just lying down on the ground to be honest quite often um, I had a really packed full day of, of uh, adolescent clients today and in between one of the sessions I lay on the ground of the of the um, of the therapy room because I just needed to adjust for a few minutes um, so that's something. Um, reading is another big thing that I do every day and not reading anything about psychology. I would go looper if I read too much or, you know, I'm just, I shouldn't use a term like that. <laughs> 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 you know what I mean. 
<laughs> I, so I read my fiction books in the evening, nothing too heavy. I don't like true crime. I hear enough of difficult stuff in the, the clinic space. I love the fluffy stuff, you know, the, the, the stuff that you, you know, you, you think about, but it's nothing, yeah, it's nothing too heavy. That's a big one. And then, of course, I'd be remiss to say my friends and family, maybe people for a cup of coffee, um, somebody for a chat, going for a walk, sitting down, having a chat with my mom, talking about this, that, and the other thing not to do with work, which is nice as well. Um, you know, cooking is a big one of mine. Um, so I uh, eat, I'm a vegetarian. Um, I was plant-based for, for quite a while. Um, and I guess now looking back, that was me trying to be really restrictive, right? And over the time I was vegan or plant-based, um, it was when I was really sick. So I think I was trying to control my my illness and my gut with my diet and you know consuming a lot of really great um information around how your diet contributes to your your health and your well-being of course but now i've kind of become a little bit more flexible because i love cheese <laughs> two years without cheese I don't know. right so brought back in the cheese which is great um but i still you know try to get as much fruit and veg in my diet as i can me and my husband both love cooking we love thinking about what's for dinner sometimes it takes up way too much brain space about what am i going to have for dinner tonight um but just putting on a bit of music dancing in the kitchen we have a great laugh just dancing like <laughs> chilling together um and recently over the summer we got two kittens which you know just kind of sitting down with them they're silly they're gorgeous um and that's something that i've really enjoyed doing the last few months is say i finish work or i just go down um, and i lie with them and i just watch them um, and that's a bit of kind of mindfulness as well mm. so it's being really present in the moment and they'd be fighting you and they're jumping <laughs> and falling at your head and um irritating you a lot as well but that's being very present mm. and that's something that i really try to build into every day is being present in the moment um because i do tend to worry about the past worry about the future so refocusing myself in in the present moment is something i try really hard to do which when life gets busy when work gets busy not easy mm -hmm. um but doing things like it might sound strange but lying on the, the ground of my, <laughs> my therapy room standing outside in the in the evening getting some of that fresh air um and something i do every morning and every evening without fail again some people find it really weird but i say good morning world thank you for another day and I say, good night, world. Thank you for another day. And I say to the sky, to the outside. Um, and that's part of gratitude and, and gratefulness. And when I am feeling overwhelmed, I go through something that I was grateful for that day. Something, it could be something really small, like um, someone smiled at me in the supermarket. Or it can be something really big, like someone helped me out or you know someone reached out that I hadn't talked to in a while. Um, so gratitude is something that I really try to bring into my everyday as well. Definitely. I think gratitude is something that has come up on so many of the podcasts that I've done as well. And when you are in the habit of gratitude journaling, you're looking for things as well. Like you're much more aware of it during the day. And I suppose, Emily, then coming to you, what are the yeah. things that you do? Um, so I I will also caveat to begin with. I do practice a lot of these things, but I would say that it's quite an individual thing. You know, like I wouldn't say for anyone listening or anyone who's here to do what I do, you know, because it's a very individual basis. So like 
I always say to everyone, you need to know yourself and you know, you need to make time for yourself. I think as people, we if we're getting to know someone else, we give them all the time in the world, we give them hours and hours of our lives to get to know them, but we don't give our time ourselves any of that time. You know, we don't make any dates with ourselves, we don't sit down and try to get to know who we are. And as a result then when we do sit down and then it's quiet, it's a scary place to be because you don't know what's going on in that head. So, you know, I give um, a couple of talks on things and one I talk about is emotional eating and you know there's all these reasons there's all scientific reasons we emotionally eat you know and it's there's a big cause of it is because you know we don't like being on our own by ourselves and we don't like what goes on in our heads when we're alone by ourselves so you know when you don't know yourself it's very hard to say how to care for yourself properly because you don't know how to do it because you don't know what you're looking for and you don't know what the cues in your body is telling you and you don't know what your mind is telling you and your mind's scary and ah, so, yeah. <laughs> so you know i would say if you are new to the whole self-care journey and you are feeling really stressed and you know you need to get to know yourself first you need to get to know what actually works for you and one thing i do with both kids and adults um in different ways and to be honest i prefer the kids way is a mental health toolbox and i use it on myself all the time all the time and you know it's kind of a situation where when you do get to a stage where you know yourself a little bit how do you read the emotions and i mean uh like to touch on this as well it's physical you know like they're there you know they're there you know we all know when our hearts pound out of our chest that there's something wrong and we all know when we're about to cry we're sad you know <laughs> there's something happening and we have all these physical cues that tell us or else our brain is telling us to run out of the door and all these other things that go on as well we've all these cues that tell us what we're feeling but we don't we then are like never mind don't look at that now and you know for some reason there's this kind of thing out there that a negative emotion shouldn't be felt and and we'd all be a whole pack of sociopaths if we didn't have them. So, you know, we need to have the negative emotions and negative emotions are often often indicators. And it's like what Catherine is saying, when you, you know, rate everyone, you know, that's actually very like true, you know, if if someone is is draining your energy, then that's that's a part of it, you know what I mean? And that's a that's an indication to you. That's a like an indicator on a car hang on here you know this negative emotion is telling me something and sorry for quite even the opposite effect as well you know if you do something that brings really happiness to you yeah then you need to zone in that go that actually did bring happiness to that me i've been sitting like for me it's going for a spin like Absolutely. i go for a spin with my husband I'm like, I feel like I haven't been for spinning ages yeah <laughs> just spin and you it know? works for me you know yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, like i totally like that's what that's the part to get to know yourself you know and you can do that at any age which is why i'm trying to talk to teens at the moment who won't talk to me but you know this is what it's all about is getting to know yourself when you can and making that time for yourself and then make your toolbox so you know i know myself the most uh, common negative emotions for me specifically how how vulnerable i'm being are you know kind of anger anxiousness that's not the word as a therapist of anxiousness Anxiety, that's the one. Um, and you know, they like they'd be kind of my top two. So they're ones I need a tool for. You know, so if I don't have a tool for them, my God, my life is hard. You know, um, and like we all worry, we all have things going on, we all have uh, these negative emotions that we feel. But if you don't understand what that looks like in your body, mm. if you don't understand how what that feels like, then you're not going to know how to deal with it. And you know, you can like and I, I don't mean to to be blunt about it but you can do all the, the nice things in the world you can go away you can light the candle you can do the gratitude you can do the journaling you can tell yourself you're fantastic it's not going to work unless it's the right tool for you and um, because i know that from just seeing many many people in therapy 
that, that journaling works for some people, it does work for other people, gratitude works for some people, it doesn't work for others. And you know, a funny thing that I you know came across a couple of years ago as well is you know, people are like, Oh, I, I'm feeling anxiety, do you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go to a run. I'm like, fucking hell. <laughs> Excuse my French. Um but like your 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 heart's already pounding. You're going out, your heart's pounding more. You know, and like unless that's something that definitely has worked for you in the past, what you're actually doing is making your heart worse. Yeah. So when you get back then, oh, you're you're exhausted <laughs> and your heart's about to burst out of your chest as well. So, you know, there's, you know, it's what does actually work for you. So if I was to give anyone any advice, it wouldn't be do what I do because, you know, so many problematic at times. But it's it's more kind of get to know yourself, sit down and make a date with yourself. Treat yourself like you would someone else, you know, treet yourself like you would to, to meet someone else make an intentional time to get to know yourself a little bit more if you don't feel you know yourself if your if your mind is a scary place to be in the evening you need to kind of question why that is and get to know what, what the, the meaning mm-hmm. behind that is and then put a tool with each of those negative emotions you feel minor anger anxiety you feel the most an angry person and then you know you figure out which one you are you know and you just pair your net your your negative emotion i'm putting it very simply pair your negative emotion with a tool that works and you know i think if you if you do those two things it will work in, in some way, shape or form for you, I think. Fantastic. And I suppose just before we start the Q&A, um, I'm going to ask each of you for, I suppose, if you had one piece, because this is for World Mental Health Day as well, yeah. it's a special broadcast going out on, on the 10th, which is next Tuesday. Um, what is the one piece of advice that you would give to someone who is who is struggling? Um, talk to yourself like you would your best friend. Fantastic. Aideen? Um, there's lots of things I can that I just popping in my head right now. I think connecting is is really important. Reaching out for support, whether that be to someone close to you, um, or to a professional. But I know that that can be really hard for some people. So I kind of want to leave people with something that they can practically mm-hmm. use. Um, so uh. I talk about the three ends a good bit in therapy so notice name and now so notice is to notice like um, we were saying about when the heart is racing when your mind is racing noticing your cues for that difficult uncomfortable emotions name it whatever name you want to give it this is anxiety this is my mind racing this is the bully in my brain this is anger and then now is that grounding piece so when your mind is racing or when you're feeling really overcome with those big emotions the body isn't in the present it's in the past or it's in the future and what happens is we think that we're unsafe when that occurs so we want to bring ourselves back into the now to let our bodies know that i'm good i'm safe so doing a grounding practice like deep breathing, just gently pressing your feet into the ground, noticing what sounds you can hear can be really helpful for people. But that noticing and the naming is really important because without that, if you just go straight into the grounding, you're leaving out a big component of of yourself and your well-being. Fantastic. That's actually a practice that I did um, through therapy myself. And my inner critic is a jack in the box. That's the the name I gave it. So so there we go. (laughs) And Catherine. Um, I suppose it's just to know that you have the answers within yourself because you know yourself best and you're telling yourself all the time, but you're kind of shutting yourself up as well. So it's just keying into and listening to yourself and kind of, you're go- you know, you get that ache or you might get that happiness or you're, you're talking to yourself all the time, but 
probably 90% of the time you're saying, oh, shut up, you know? <laughs> so I think anyone like that, like that you, you do have it within you. It's just checking in and listening to yourself and stop shutting yourself up um, and stand firm and use your voice and say, in the nicest possible way, I'm not able to do that today. Um, I might be able to do it tomorrow or I do this version of it. I might go out for the whole night. I might go out for an hour. I might not drink. I will drive so that you're just seeing what's comfortable for you. You're not shutting down completely and you're, you're, I suppose you're keeping control because a lot of times when you're feeling low, you don't have that control and it's that fear. Um, but I think a lot of it is to communicate and to communicate with someone that you trust. You know, like sometimes I just go, Mark, you know, this happened today. I just don't know what, and we just talk about it together and, just you're offloading and it. it is so true a problem shared is a problem halved um, but I think communication is just say something it doesn't have to be you'll find when you start opening the Pandora's box that it's cool <laughs> just by opening just one sentence and saying I don't like whatever you know or I, I can't do this I think that's very important just to communicate and just speak out what you're actually saying inside just say it out Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing, lady. We will leave it at that for tonight. Thank you so much to everyone for coming. Um, I hope that our conversation resonated with you and I hope you took something away um, from it. And thank you so much to my guests, to Catherine, Aideen and Emily for joining me tonight and giving up your time. Um, I really appreciate it. And yeah, so I'm going to finish up the recording now. So thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, I'll be back on Friday. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Mind Your Mind podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, rate, review or follow. It really does help with getting the podcast out there. You can follow us on Instagram at mindyourmindpod for extra content and some behind the scenes action. Talk to you next week. And in the meantime, don't forget to mind your mind.